Well, beloved, if you would turn back with me to our last scripture reading, uh, that was Galatians and chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And our text this evening is just the verses that we read, uh, verses 1 to 11. But before we, we look at these, this text again, I want to pose to you a basic question. It's a question that perhaps we'd be surprised to encounter given what we've seen thus far in the Apostles' argument. But it's an important question and one that's answered in our text this evening. And that is, what really is the characteristics of mature Christianity? Sorry, what are the characteristics of a mature Christian, more specifically? What is the principle of his life? What marks him in his maturity? Those are crucial questions that the Apostle is going to answer for us this evening. But I want you to notice that as we do come to this fourth chapter, and before he comes to that subject itself, he he is really concluding for us thoughts that he began all the way back at the beginning of the third chapter. As you look at verse 29 of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4, you'll probably recognize that there is a single train of thought, and the only division between them is our chapter division. Um, and that there is there's quite a lot to be said for holding these two texts together. Certainly the apostles continue that you find there in verses 26 and following in chapter 3. And he really concludes that argument only in the sixth verse of our text this evening. While the chapter division does seem quite artificial, I think there is something quite helpful about keeping together what you have at the end of our text this evening and what you have at the beginning of chapter 4. To illustrate what I mean by that, just allow me to recall for a moment what you have in the third chapter. There, as the apostle lays out his argument, he begins with a basic question, and that question is, how does a Gentile partake of the self-same blessing that Abraham had? And then from the sixth verse of chapter 3 right through to the end of the chapter and continued into the first verses of our text this evening, the apostle answers that very question. And you remember how he does it. He begins by saying, by the self-same faith that Abraham possessed, by that is, a faith that has the self-same object, namely Christ who has made a curse for his people to deliver them out from the curse of the law. But then as we saw last midweek when we were together, the Apostle describes that faith as a faith that has been driven to Christ through a right use of the law of God. It is a faith that has Christ as its object, just as Abraham's faith did as well. But then when you come to the end of chapter 3, and even continuing through our text this evening, the Apostle reminds us that this is a faith that has been driven to Christ through the rigor of the law. That's how the Apostle answers that question. How do, Gentile, how do Gentiles partake of the self-same benefit Abraham had? By having a like faith and the same object, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. When you come to our text this evening, the Apostle really continues that train of thought, and he does so in the first six verses of our fourth chapter. You remember he tells us really in summary what he's already given to us. He, he tells us that we were children. We were children. And he's referring to we as, as those who were under the old covenant administration. 
You remember when he talks about the law here, he's not talking about the threefold division that you and I often have in mind, namely the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. He's thinking here primarily about the entire administration. In other words, that entire history of the church, the jurisdiction, the worship, and the discipline of the church from Sinai to the new advent or to the first coming of Christ, the new covenant. He's saying that that all really is the law. And he says, we who were under that administration were like children. We were like children. And then he says, we were under bondage. In bondage under the elements of this world. It's a staggering, staggering turn of phrase. But that's how the apostle describes the experience of the church. In fact, if you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, you remember that the Old Testament believers were called the church underage. The idea is in our text. The apostle says the church in that time, again, from Sinai to the coming of Christ, that church was in its adolescence. And in its adolescence, it was, as it were, under bondage. As he says here, as it were, under the elements of this world. And again, beloved, he's referring here to the entire administration. The doctrine, not the doctrine rather, but the discipline. The jurisdiction and the worship of the old covenant is in view here. And he says here it's bondage. But then he says, as you come to the middle of that section, he says, when the fullness of time was come. Again, he's continuing this idea of maturation or matriculation. The idea is the church underage is maturing and has matured with the coming of Christ. In the first advent, as he redeemed them out from under the law, the apostle says that is the church now in her maturity. Now again, beloved, when we look at that word laws, we'll see it in just a moment. He has in view the Old Covenant administration as it breathed out so very clearly the condemnation that was due to man for his violation of the covenant of works. And he says, Christ has redeemed us out from the law and also out from that administration that more clearly demonstrated that condemnation. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Everything we've set up to this point, though, You remember up to this point in the the end of the third chapter, the apostle has already laid out this foundation for us. But what's so crucial is what you have in the latter portion of our text this evening. He asks, how turn ye again? He turns to these Galatian believers, and he he really, as it were, channels his argument, the the entirety of the third chapter, into a single rebuke. How could you then turn back to that bondage out of which you've been redeemed by Christ? Return to those beggarly elements. How can you do so? And the apostle says, as I witness this, I'm afraid of you. As they return to that which they've been redeemed from, he says he's concerned that his preaching, as it were, has been in vain. Well, as we look at this text and the significant themes that it invokes, we do have a very simple theme. The theme that the apostle insists on is that Christians must not return to legal bondage. Christians must not return to legal bondage. And I want us to consider that under two headings. I want us to think, first of all, of this idea of maturity as the apostle presents it to us, 
And then I want us to consider the mandate that he sees so clearly annexed to this new stage in the church and in the believer's life. And so first of all, I want us to consider maturity, and maturity in terms of the old covenant church. Because this is precisely where the apostle begins. As you look at the beginning of chapter 4, he turns to those who were under, under the Mosaic administration, who were under the jurisdiction and the discipline of the old covenant. And he says, we were children. He begins by saying that we are heirs, as, and as long as we are children, we're under tutors. The idea is, again, that of matriculation or maturity. The church is in her adolescence under all of these things. But what does he mean by that? Uh, beloved, I, I don't know if in my summary of chapter 3 you, you might have almost bristled at how I described these things. You see, as we read this text, it's very clear that the apostle is drawing a sharp contrast between the believer's experience in the new covenant and that of the old. But what's also important for us to remember is he's not drawing such a contrast as to make the old covenant devoid of grace. In fact, he's actually done quite the opposite, hasn't he? In the third chapter alone, it's demonstrated that not only did Abraham not only did Abraham have the covenant promises wrapped in Christ, but then as we saw last time we were together, even at Sinai, through the hands of the mediator who must be the Lord Jesus Christ, that same law was given. And so the, and so the apostle has no confusion here. The substance of grace is identical, both under the old covenant administration and for the Jews and Gentiles under the new. But the point that he drives home here and the point of contrast that's so clear in this text is that under the old covenant administration, condemnation was manifestly clearer than grace. That's a distinction that, beloved, runs right through the New Testament and is even even encapsulated in the prophets in their anticipation of the new. Let me just illustrate this for you from the epistle. Well, first of all, from the book of Acts. As, again, the apostles are dealing with the Judaizers, how do they draw that contrast? Well, Peter puts it this way, Why tempt ye God, speaking to the Judaizers, to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, again, he's talking about the ceremonies that were attached to the Old Covenant administration, and he says that it's bondage. Now, how can something that was an ordinance of grace for the Old Covenant believer be in any sense bondage? especially considering that it was, in fact, a means of grace for them. But you remember how the apostle puts in the epistle to the Hebrews. When speaking of another ordinance, namely the sacrifices, he says this, in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. This was an administration that was supposed to be so very clear in its condemnation, so very clear about the law's rigor, but until Christ would, cl- would come, grace would be present, but not so clear. Clarity would come, noonday clarity would come in the fullness of time, as the Apostle says. And so, beloved, he says, the Apostle does in Hebrews 10, then the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of things. That's how we're to understand this idea of maturity or matriculation. It is moving from an administration that so very clearly thundered the threatenings of the law 
and into an age where now gospel clarity has come with greater vigor and brilliance than ever has before. The church now has come into her maturity in this way. Now, beloved, as I articulate that for you and do so very briefly, it's so crucial for us to remember that the apostle is speaking to the church in Galatia. He's not speaking to men and to women who were raised under these ordinances. Which makes all the more confusing what he says next. When he turns to these very Christians, he asks the question, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly element? It's a staggering question. It's staggering because, again, you remember that these ones were not part of that transitional age where where the church under the old covenant in the first century moved out from under the ceremonies and into that liberty purchased for them by Christ. The, The Galatians were not part of that. So how can you talk about them returning again if they were never under that administration in the first place? And again, you remember Paul makes that very clear, doesn't he? That they weren't in fact. They weren't in fact part of the commonwealth of Israel even as proselytes. As the apostle describes the Galatians here for us, he says, you were idolaters and then you were converted to Christ. There was no time whenever they were proselytes. There was no time whenever they were in the commonwealth of Israel. So how can they return to something they were never under? That's a crucial question, but it's a powerful question. Because it highlights how profound this argument really is in its broadest sense. You see, the apostle is dealing with something something that hits quite closer to home than I think we, we recognize at first glance. In verse 8, when he says, He did service unto them which by nature are no gods, he reminds them of their darkness. But he also reminds them of their service. They labored. They labored to appease these false deities. And from whence did they get this idea, as is running through pagan culture, uh, not only in the first century, but in the 21st century as well, that men must atone for their sins and they must do so by living virtuous lives? Where, where Where did the natural man get the idea that he must have some kind of moral perfection to be acceptable with the divine. You see, friend, this is where I believe the reformers are so very helpful. Because what they're saying really in unison is printed into man's nature, even his fallen nature is this principle of the covenant of works. Even in among idolaters, you will find this idea still very prominent. The idea is, do this and you shall live. You must appease the divine somehow through your own meritorious righteousness. And so the apostle says, really, drawing a case that's analogous from the Old Old Testament church, he says, when you came out of paganism, when you left when you left that system that also screamed the same thing, that man must die if he is not. When you came out of that and into Christ, you matured. Just as the old covenant church, leaving that economy that was so clear on condemnation, 
but less clear on the gospel that that was a maturity. He says, you Galatians experienced the like thing. In other words, beloved, the apostle envisions for every believer in Christ a recapitulation of Israel's experience. That as men lay hold of Christ by faith, they come out from under the curse of the law, its threatenings from Sinai, and in coming to Christ, they now mature. Whether, whether they were in the visible church before or not, it doesn't matter, and the Galatians are the case in point. When men and women come to Christ, they enter into maturity by laying hold of free grace in its noonday clarity in the new covenant. And beloved, as we look at this text, I think it is quite important for us to remember the shape or the contours of this maturity for both parties, whether Jew or Gentile, the form that it takes is identical for the apostle. They partake of the Spirit of Christ. And you remember how he describes that. That God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That's the experience of the matured believer in either case. And friend, there's a staggering implication for all of this. And that is that it is the Christian's greater grasp on the free grace that is tendered to them in Christ that designates them mature. That is the principle of Christian maturity. And, you know, I, I, I could go to a number of texts here this evening, but let me just raise two to highlight that very point. Take what the Apostle prays for with regard to the church at Ephesus. He prays that they would comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. And what is the Apostle praying there for the church? He's praying there that they would come into greater and greater clarity have genuinely an experiential acquaintance with the fullness of grace that is found in Christ. And friend, as the apostle continues to drive home these themes, not only in the Ephesians, but right through through all of his epistles, he highlights that this is the principle, the principle of the believer's life that will lead him to mortify sin. Romans 8, a text that we know well. Ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. Text well known. You will be putting sin to death through the agency of the Spirit of God working in you. But then he says this, Ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Beloved, that spirit that he speaks of in Romans 8, that actually impels the mortification of the believer's life, is that spirit described for us in our text this evening that leads men and women to cry, Abba, Father. And so, Christian, while we think about the experiential knowledge of grace, and as we think about a deeper understanding of the love of God as revealed in Christ, The apostle always says that that has a real utility in the life of the believer for his sanctification. That that it's not merely for his comfort, but these are the very things that impel him forward in Christ. 
These, are, these will be the very themes that drive him into Christ's likeness. In other words, these are the very things that will bring him deeper and deeper into maturity. And friend, I don't know about you, but that's a staggering statement that the apostle is making here. Because I think we often reverse the course. I think too often we think that the matured believer is, is, is the man who is most acquainted with the threatenings of the law and is least willing to appropriate the promises of the gospel to himself. And the apostle says quite the opposite. Maturity, either in the church corporately or with regard to the individual Galatians, is always predicated on a deep and a clear understanding of the gospel and a close appropriation of it to themselves. Well, friend, I don't know about you, but that's such such an important corrective. Such an important corrective. But that leads us to the mandate. The mandate behind all of this. The apostle, as a pastor, comes to the church here and he says, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed labor in vain. A friend, again, you remember the apostle here is referring to the church in Galatia as a church that has been brought out from under the beggarly elements. That has had an analogous experience like the old covenant church had in coming out from under those clear condemning words of Sinai and into life in Christ. And he's saying, I've preached this to you, though you are idolaters. And so he says so very clearly in this text that if they return to the covenant of works, whether they go back to paganism or they take up the legalism that the Pharisees and the Judaizers were advocating, it was as though his preaching were in vain. It's a staggering, staggering claim already at the beginning of his rebuke. If they were to go back to paganism or if they were to go back to Judaism, in either case, they'd be going back to one and the same thing. And so rendering Paul's ministry among them really a vain thing. But that's not all that he says. You see, the apostle here is pressing the argument that professing Christians must not return back to the covenant of works. And he begins by dealing dealing with a return that came through externals. He observed days and months and years and, and all of those things that the Judaizers were pressing upon the Galatians to do in order to satisfy God, as though Christ were insufficient. Now, friend, I want you to notice this, uh, and I won't belabor the point this evening, but, but this is a crucial point for us to remember why the apostle is so concerned with these things, especially after in Romans 14, he reminds us that, that of themselves, a day is an indifferent thing. You see, when you come to this text, you realize that the apostle and, and preaching earnestly that the Sabbath days as the Jews observed them, the high holy days as were required in the law, that that all the festivals and ordinances of the old covenant economy, that those things were to be done away with, was of course in part a second commandment issue, it was a fourth commandment issue, but the apostle reminds us it was also a gospel issue. It was a gospel issue. And so friend, the apostle here is demonstrating that though he is so deeply acquainted with the grace of God himself, and has come into that maturity himself, he still makes conscience, and is very carefully making conscience 
of anything that is contrary to the gospel in practice. And so he says here, the observing of days, festival days. And friend, whether it's pagan, because you remember, of course, the Galatians would have been experiencing the, the reduction of all of their own festival days. The Jews, of course, receiving rebuke for, for observing still their own festival days. The apostle here says, in either case, it is a kind of returning to the covenant of works and is not to be engaged in. But of course, he doesn't stop at externals. What's so staggering about this particular section is that the rebuke is personal, but it's not merely with regard to the apostle himself. He's not only coming to them saying that his labor would have been in vain. Do you remember how he places the Galatians before God in the ninth verse? He says, but now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. How turn ye again? You see, beloved, there is an external turning to the covenant of works that the apostle repudiates, wherein we, we make new laws or adhere to other laws, new festival days or old, when God has not prescribed it. That's external and all men can see it. But when he in the ninth verse comes to them and says they stand before God as those who have turned away, that reminds us that there is also an internal. There is an internal turning to the covenant of works that is likewise repudiated. The whole man is here in view. And you know, beloved, as you look at Acts 15, when the Judaizing crisis came to its head in Jerusalem, you remember how Peter again raises the question with the Judaizers. He says, why tempt ye God? Why tempt ye God? in returning to these things. And beloved, when the believer when the believer embraces legal inclinations, that is, he would stand somehow in his own meritorious righteousness, or that he would commend himself to God outside of Jesus Christ, beloved, our text no less condemns that than it does the observance of these festival days. Because in both cases, beloved, before Almighty God, the searcher of hearts, it is a turning away from him and back to the beggarly elements. As we close, Christian, I think the clearest illustration that comes to us from this text is, is that of a child, and more specifically, an adopted child. You hear of these stories, I suppose, but, but just imagine for a moment a, a child adopted out of an abusive loveless situation and brought into a loving, incredibly supportive home and and brought into that home at significant cost and and brought into that home and and furnished with all of the necessities of excuse me of life and all of the things necessary for their own well-being. But then imagine that child running away from that home into which they've been brought to embrace the ones that abused them, that offered them no succor or support. Beloved, that's the image that you have, that the apostle sets before the Galatians. He, he sets before them the reality of their adoption in Christ, and then he says, you're turning against it all. 
One who has redeemed you at such a high cost. One who has furnished you with such good and gracious gifts. And would you then embrace these weak and these beggarly elements? Would you go back to the tutor when you've come to matriculation and maturity as heir? And beloved, I think for you and for me as believers, this is a rebuke that reminds us that our legal inclinations, they're not benign things, and they're not abstract ideas either. These things are quite personal. When you and I would commend ourselves to God in anything, whether in prayer, coming to worship, whether we would think too highly of our good works, beloved, in all of those cases, in all of those cases, we are like the child, running from that home, running from all of those privileges and benefits purchased for us by Christ, and seeking somehow to survive once again in the house of Mr. Legality. Beloved, it should be heartbreaking seeing that that propensity in us still abides and abides in ways that are so still very subtle. Beloved, as we look at this text and as we close this evening, I want you to notice that if we hold together everything that we've said thus far, that that really true maturity, whether in a church corporately considered or the Christian considered in the microcosm, in either case, true maturity consists in a clear grasp and appropriation of the gospel. Well then, friend, if that's the case, then I can say with all confidence in the world that Christ desires your maturity and your greater grasp of love, divine love in him, than you do yourselves. If this is that powerful means that will drive you to mortify the deeds of the flesh, friend, I need you to know that that this evening the text is clear. This is something that God desires for you to have. That your Redeemer has purchased for you to have. And so, beloved, He desires these things more for you than you can for yourselves. But as we close, there is that exhortation. The exhortation, friends, if that's all true, if true Christian maturity consists in a clear grasp and appropriation of the gospel, then it also requires, as the apostle shows us here, a real and a hearty turning away from legalism, from seeking to commend our own righteousness before God to commend ourselves outside of Christ. The apostle says here that is a turning away from God and so averse to Christian maturity. But on the other hand, friend, it's not only that the apostle urges us to make conscience of legalism, he also urges us to make conscience of what we call antinomianism, where we have no thought about the law of God at all, though we make conscience of nothing. How do I see that in the text? Well, friend, just notice here. In verse 10, he utterly repudiates the observing of days, months, times, and years. He does make conscience. He makes conscience of any repudiation of the gospel. And in fact, as the apostle demonstrates later in this epistle, he makes more conscience of the law than the legalist himself. No, Christian maturity consists in spurning both legalism and antinomianism. 
But beloved, what we can't get away from as we close is that this text reminds us that this maturity will come only as you and I more and more by experience know what he describes for us there in the sixth verse. That spirit of his son in our hearts crying, Abba, Father. It is the experiential acquaintance with grace that you and I must strive for. This text urges us to do so. Urges us to make conscience of sin for many reasons, but this as well. That this will hinder us from knowing more and more deeply the very thing that will drive us to greater maturity in Christ. And so may we be such people, tender before the Lord, a people thankful that as Christ has brought us back to God, he's covered all. And that all would then redound to the glory of his own great name. Amen.